All right. Well, uh, thank you guys for coming to, to Ruth. Um, we're hoping a four-week study. It might go longer than that um, if, uh, if we get caught in some areas, and there's plenty of good areas to get caught in. But um, uh, like we saw in the, it's again an amazing, um, neat thing. Like we saw in the Esther study, so much about God's providence. And uh, Papa was talking about God's providence from Romans 11. So Papa, if you would read that and then maybe pray for us, and then Jared's going to read the first chapter of Ruth and we'll get, we'll get busy. Thank you, Jerry. The Word of the Lord, Romans uh, 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord Christ, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and, and particularly to turn to this verse which uh, gives all the glory, all the praise, all to you and you alone. Uh, this lesson is about, is entitled Ruth, but it's really about Naomi and it's really about your providence at work. And it's mysterious. Our, our author, uh, our, one of our commentators, Duguid, uh, talks about uh, mysterious X factor. And I think that's nothing but grace and uh, providence and and sovereignty at work. And we see that all through the uh, through Ruth. So thank you for this opportunity. Uh, we need your spirit. We need your help this afternoon. And we offer all these prayers and words and praises to your name and to your glory. Amen. Mm. Amen. Thanks. I'll buy it, Jared. If you'd read chapter one for us, give us kind of the um, context of what we're looking at here. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabab Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Shilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Good deal, Jared. Thank you. Um, Scott, you have anything on the background here for us of uh, where we're starting with things with the judges? Oh, I think that's Papa Fred's domain right there. That is sure. background, yeah. Papa Fred. Papa background, Fred. <laughs> well, this is a uh, Piper um, uh, spoke on these verses um, forty years ago uh, on Ruth. And he entitled his uh, talk, The Sweet and Bitter Providences of God. And, and the time of the judges, um, uh, Ruth 1.1 uh, begins in the days when the judges ruled. There was famine in the land. And uh, we know that in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's usually not good. That's not too good. Mm -mm. And that was a long period of time. Let's say they left Egypt about 1450, and then it took them a while to come. I mean, we're talking about, in, in the study of Ruth here, we're talking about around 1100 B.C., only because we back into it David's uh, lineage, birth, and, and whatever. So it was quite a bit of, bit of time, and as you know from going through the judges, in fact, you were part of our, our group, and I think we got so uh, frustrated with going through judges, we almost, we almost were, ready, were ready to give up the ghost, but, and then along comes Samuel. So, uh, uh, so it was a very difficult time, and, and people did what was right in their own eyes, and we see a reflection of this in... Um, in in Ruth, um, uh, you know, um, do good comments. It's like Charles Dickens beginning the tale of two cities. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And uh, you know, we could say that about you could say that about your life. And so this is not just about Ruth and Naomi. Uh, it's about us as children of God. So. And um, they're about, uh, as they begin this journey back home eventually in chapter 1, they're about, I figured, uh, uh, based on the, the little maps we had, maybe be 70 miles, something like that, from, 
back to Jerusalem from Moab, depending on where they were in Moab. So, yeah, and you might remember the judges. Wow, that is quite a uh, quite a study. It'd be a it'd be an interesting study sometime. But they were always in these cycles, and uh, you probably remember the cycle of the judges. Israel sins. They sin and they go way. They worship the gods of the uh, Amorites or the Moabites, and then God punishes them by just pummeling them with a foreign army. And so then, what is always happens when we're in trouble? They race back um, and cry out to God. Oh no, things are terrible. We need your help. Then God sends a judge, and uh, and then the judge just is used by God to pummel the army that's pummeling the Israelites, Moabites, Midianites, whoever it is. And then the judge kicks the bucket and it starts all over again, right? Then Israel starts to sin again. This is like over and over and over this cycle. And it is, it's a ridiculous thing, although I don't, I'm convicted because I think I do a, a similar sort of cycle in my own life sometimes um, at times. Scott, any um, other things kind of about the background there, the judges, kind of what we're talking about here? They, there's a famine in Judah, so probably not the wisest move to go to Moab, but still a tempting thing to do. Yeah, sure. I'll just say, uh, in terms of that passage at the end of Judges, where it takes place, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. My dad, I think, when he was preaching on this, he said, basically, that means everyone did what was wrong. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Uh, but that's, 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 you could just well say that, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> basically what that means. And that's, when, that's the context where Ruth takes place, and especially in this opening part, I think it's significant. But what I want to say is just big picture, like Ruth, just to kind of get everybody excited maybe about Ruth. I mean, we everybody's probably read Ruth. Fascinating, just as the story itself, four chapters, it's hard to stop at one chapter. I mean, you just want to keep reading because it kind of cliffhangs you, cliffhangs you through. And I remember I've read something this week about a guy in the 1850s. It was like a small, it was like a short story competition or something like that. And this guy concealed the fact that it was Ruth and he read it to this, it was non-Christian audience. And the non-Christian audience loved it. And they could not believe when he told him it was in the Bible, they could not believe it was in the Bible. But just as just a story itself, people can love this story just, you know, surface level. But in terms of for Christians, man, the, the promise of God, we've already hinted at, which we can't get away from it. Six no. months, I thought we did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big old book, too, you know. It's a big old book that Piper did. And uh, here it is again, the, the promise of God. This is what one guy said. The book of Ruth is designed to teach us that there is no point in our lives where God is not present and working all things together for the good of those who love him. Not in the desperation of economic catastrophe, not in the darkness of bereavement, not in the loneliness of personal isolation. So mm. certainly we're going to see that throughout the book of Ruth. But one of the big things that I've been thinking about this week is comes from Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote a little book on the book of Ruth, I think Faithful God or something like that. It's I just was reading it devotionally. It's fantastic. But Ferguson made this point. He said, when we go through suffering, the suffering itself may not be primarily about us. It mm. may be about how God wants to use us in the lives of other people. And that's exact. I think that's certainly wow. true in Naomi's life. It's not really primarily about her. It's about Ruth. It's about the line of Christ coming. And so it's just something to think about. When we go through suffering, I think Second Corinthians, Paul says, God's the God of all comfort. He comforts us. Why? So that we can comfort others who are going through suffering. I couldn't help but think about my parents in this. So I have an older brother, Chris. I'm the middle child. Mark's the youngest. And after Chris and I were born, my parents got pregnant uh, with another child. 
And I think I was probably four. I was trying to ask my parents about it. They couldn't remember the exact time frame. I think I was probably four years old. They had a miscarriage. They, they lose this baby. And I still have this fragmented memory in my mind of my mom, like in deep sorrow in the kitchen, my dad, like comforting her. I didn't know. I couldn't understand what was going on. But she was like, they were going through this suffering. And my mom apparently told my dad, you know, we're done. Two kids. That's it. She couldn't deal with it. This was so painful to lose, you know, a baby. And then six months. So my dad said he closed that door. He's like, we're not having any more kids. Six months later, my mom's like, let's try for a girl is what she what she said. And so then they got Mark. But she said <laughs> Marcus <or> Marcus Aurelius, <laughs> that's right. Like yeah. she said this is one of the best decisions she ever made was, you know, trying for the, for a baby after losing one. And what but what's happened is certainly Mark came from that providentially. This is it wasn't about them in that sense, about Mark. Mark was going to become a Christian at 16 and going to take off like a rocket ship and going to become a pastor of a church. That's certainly huge. But then my mom has been used time and again, when, when moms and churches have lost children, mm-hmm. she has written handwritten notes. And time and again, it's like her, the comfort that she received from God has been able to comfort people. So I just think when we go through suffering, it may not be about us primarily. So we want to be good stewards of the suffering. Say, Lord, I know you're going to comfort me in this, but please prepare me to help me to be a, a comfort to others who, who may be going through suffering. It's the God of all comfort. He, he is. Comfort us. Yes. In the same way that we in turn. Okay. Yes. Amen. Well, and certainly, Scott, God's used you in that way um, after Liliana and uh, continually will. It's really neat. Jared, um, you had some thoughts about Israel's fall into lawlessness, which uh, was over and over there. Tell us your thoughts. Yeah, I just want to provide a little more context as we start with the first chapter. The chapter starts with there's a famine in the land. And we know back in Deuteronomy, when God gave Israel the Old Covenant, he promised them that there's going to be blessings for obedience and there's going to be curses for disobedience. Um, I took this little excerpt. It says in Deuteronomy 28, You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. So kind of like going off what you guys were saying with the book of Judges, we see the cyclical lawlessness that's going on. And in turn, God is not providing for Israel because he has already promised there's going to be curses if you're faithless. So it, it brought me back to 2 Timothy 2 where it says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So I think jumping out the gate with some application here, just because we have a profession of faith at the beginning does not necessarily mean that we're going to endure to the end. And I think we see that in the book of Judges with Israel. Every time they say, God, we're going to start following you. And every time they fall into lawlessness again. Hmm. So we see this cyclical pattern. And I was encouraged just to think through what it means to um, endure to the end. Because it can be so easy to wander from the faith. And I think that's kind of the moral of the book of Judges as we transition into Ruth here with right out the gate, there's a famine in the land. And we see the result of our sin in the people of Israel. And that's good with that. what Mark just taught us on the, the soils, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and, uh, and truly that good soil that will always um, Produce, Papa. Any more? Now, Moab's not very far. Is that what it's I understand? Like I said, six it, it, miles. No, no, no. <laughs> you have to go north through uh, Reuben uh, from Moab to go north till you get to the top of the Dead Sea. Take a left and go to Jerusalem through Jericho. Yeah. So seventy miles. Okay, there we go. So, so roughly. That's, yeah. So that she is um, on her way back here. Um, and 
we might I might have skipped some stuff that that would been too good there, Scott. Anything else? The name of the man. They so all three of them are married. Um, down there and to the sons. Um, the name of the man, the men that I can't pronounce very well. And, uh, and Chilion. there we go. You can pronounce them. I like you that. Know, and innocently on names, buddy, Malon, you know, they both died. So Malon means sickly and Chilion means, uh, pining. So uh -oh. neither one, neither one of them have names that maybe no wonder they died. <laughs> That's the yeah. point. Yeah. Wow. Scott, anything on, on there, the, those first couple verses there? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the famine, what Jared is hinting at, I think this is a sign of God's judgment. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody said that this should be, they should repent, turn to, back to the Lord. Instead, they turn their backs on the Lord and they say, oh, let's go to Moab. And this is like, I, I think this is clearly a sinful choice, even though the author of Ruth doesn't tell us explicitly that. I, I don't see how it couldn't be. And one, one guy just said, Moab, in terms of going to Moab, he said, it was, we might say, the place where if you told a crude or blasphemous joke about the God of Israel, most people would laugh. Yeah. It is a strange place to go away from the promised land. This is not things were difficult in town A, so we migrated to town B to find food. No, this is more like things were difficult in our home country, so we immigrated to join the Islamic State in Syria. So I just mm. think people just talked about the subtlety of sin, though. They, they may have thought, I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to just do this just to get food or something like that. And they, they think maybe they're going to spend a short time there. It turns into 10 years. Mm. Like uh, one guy, I think Ferguson, again, uh, said something about the turning your back on the Lord. He said, do they intend only a brief sojourn? Ten years later, Naomi is still there. When we turn our backs on the Lord, Lord's word, we never intend to do it for long, but it rarely works out that way. So I, even the subtlety of sin, it, it's going to take us further than we want to go. And there are ten years there, and they may have only wanted to go a brief. Isn't that interesting? And I don't know that uh, reading Ruth in the past, and this was the same that got me with uh, Esther. Papa, you said this a bunch too. There was so much more in Esther than I ever dreamt. There oh, was, yeah. and that's always the way it is going to be with Scripture. Same way with Ruth. Once I was reading commentaries or listening to other people talk about it, I thought, you know what? I did not realize that that was a sinful choice that they had made to go down there. Jared, was that your um, kind of thought too? Yeah, there is a lot that you can draw out of this book that you probably initially don't even capture. Yeah. As they go into Moab, kind of picking up on what Scott is saying, I think there's this continued theme of Israel being subjected to foreign nations as Naomi has to go into Moab to survive. I think we see this theme like all throughout Scripture. Even in Esther, we um, talked about the people of Israel. They're stuck in Persia, and they're trying to get out of there. And then we have Joseph. He's got to go down to Egypt. And then Moses is in Egypt. And then Babylon takes Israel captive and Judah captive and... So we see this theme of Israel being taken over by Gentile nations over and over again. And the question is, why is this theme so prevalent um, in Scripture? And I think going off of what Papa Fred was saying with Romans 11, for one, it brings the Jews to jealousy. Mm -hmm. We see that in Romans 11 where the time of the Gentiles comes in under the new covenant, and then the Jews get jealous when they see all these Gentiles being saved. And they actually turn in repentance back to God. And for two, I think as Naomi goes into Moab, I think it's foreshadowing the eventual, eventual Gentile inclusion into the people of God. And my reference text is Ephesians 2 where it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So I think it's creating the shadow of this time eventually where the Gentiles are actually going to be brought in to the people of God and included with the Jews. Yeah, that's really good. Papa, anything else there? Well, back to the uh, sojourning in, in Moab for a second. You know, of course, <clears throat> Abraham did that when yep. during a famine, went to, went to Egypt. Uh, Jacob did it because Joseph went first and set up the, the food supply, and then when there was a famine in Israel, they went there. So that was not unusual to go if you had a famine. And, and you got you to gotta remember that the, you got the Fertile Crescent. There's a reason why they call it the Fertile Crescent. And then you had, you had a, the Nile River, the largest river and the longest river in the world in Egypt. So they kind of always had food to some degree. And then, and then you had the, um, the Jordan River. And then you had the Euphrates and the Tigris River in, in Mesopotamia. So uh, somewhere there was food. And sometimes that meant relocating to mm-hmm. find food. So, uh, yeah. But I do think they had, I mean, they were in the city of bread, Bethlehem, uh, and, and turned their back and, and left. And, and, and maybe it was just to, you know, to get food. Or one, one commentator said, well, you know, when, when uh, uh, Ruth says, uh, your gods will meet my gods, there was some uh, uh, comment that in those days, not, not among the Jews, but among other nations that you kind of took your gods with you, mm. uh, you know, uh, or you left your gods behind when you left someplace. I mean, that's not Yahweh God, but that's uh, Chemosh, I think, was the was the Moab mm deity so um they might have been searching for you know better days we do that greener pastures uh we're we're a very mobile society now we move all the time so um yeah no it's that's certainly interesting well it's certain when naomi moves down there um there is real and she realizes that this is god's doing uh, her husband dies, um, both of her sons die, and she is now left with these two daughter-in-laws. If you look back there in verse 8, then she arose with her daughters-in-law in return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the fields of Moab uh, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she knows that now there is back there is food again, Um back up in Bethlehem. And so she's going to go up there, and that's where the uh, the story, um, boy, really gets good. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with with the dead and with me. So she tries to shoo them out of there. Like, okay, go on, go on back home. They've, you've come partly with me. What's your take on that, Jared? Yeah, it's a little odd how she almost discourages Ruth and Orpah from yeah. following her back home. But at the same time, we, we kind of see Christ doing this too in a certain way. And what we can learn from it, this is that there is a cost that comes 
with discipleship. Mm. I think there's a big metaphor for discipleship going on here where Naomi presents Ruth and Orpah with this option. She says, you can either stay in your homeland with all your gods right now, or you could follow me back to the people of God. And she's essentially saying, there's a parable in uh, the New Testament that says, um, there's a king, he has an army, and he has to count the size of his army before he goes out to war. Or there's someone who's building a city, and he's got to see how many materials he has before he builds the city. So the implication is that we have to look inward and see, as we're presented with the gospel, do we have enough to make it all the way? Are we willing to leave everything behind that we're comfortable with and follow Jesus in the same way that um, Naomi is asking Ruth and Orpah to follow her? I'm a little curious there, Papa. You've got your finger out, with, which well, always just, means just, you have a good just, thing just to say. thought, and it wasn't necessarily paralleling your thought, uh, Jared, but in 6, it says she'd heard that she's already lost her husband and her, boy, her sons, mm-hmm. where she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I'm wondering if she was not gleaning there mm. in Moab. I mean, she'd already lost her uh, food supply and having workers for husbands and our husband and, and sons. So, you know, they must have known what was going on in the, in the, in the, in the fields. <laughs> Maybe that was the rumor mill. <laughs> they heard that there was food in Israel. So we need to go back. Mm-hmm. Can I just jump in right, right there on the, on verse six, just real quick. Uh, I'm just going to read it again. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And two different people brought this out for me. And this is a verse that I have probably read and just not thought that much about it. But who's the one who's, again, it's God's sovereignty. Who's the one who's providing the food? Who brought the famine? I think the Lord brought the famine. Who's providing the food? It's the Lord. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. And just for us today, how often, this one pastor was just saying, when you go to the grocery store, he said, you pick up a yep. box of cereal. He, he said, think about all that goes into like everything to f- try to feel the inventory and all that stuff. The ship, the, 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 the trucks come on time and everything happens. But he said, ultimately, we as Christians know behind all that, God is the one who's, who's filling the shelves. Mm-hmm. So he said, this, this is what he said. He said, no one should walk up and down the aisles of the grocery store with a greater sense of amazement and gratitude than the Christian. For we know from where this provision comes comes. It is from the Lord. And another guy made the point in a similar way. He just said every week he takes out, a, when he lived in Pennsylvania, he took out his trash. He said usually he had two, two bags, sometimes three if they had company over, takes it out to the end of the street. You know, every week you do this once a week. And he said the bags, when we take bags of trash out, we should thank God because here's evidence wow. that God has provided. Here's his provision for hmm. us, like material needs, physical needs. And I just thought, man, what a great application from one little verse in Ruth and how thankful we should be. We're just so prone to just, we assume that we're going to get it because it's right there, but we, we need to just push back and say, man, mm-hmm. thank you, Lord, for this provision, for this year, for whatever it is we're, we're buying. It's the Lord, ultimately, who's providing. And should we I was convicted by yeah. that, too. You know, we think we get our food from, the, uh, from Kroger. That's not the case, really. I mean, we do, but that ultimately comes from the Lord. He gives us the provision to do it. He gives us the, and, uh, you know, and I was convicted to say, um, I think we were more faithful growing up to probably appreciate that, to take a little bit more time before we ate to thank the Lord. And now it's kind of become uh, a little bit too, um, uh, I don't know, Come too comfortable with just thinking it's going to be there. But but you had a different situation, a little bit different situation, too, and an appreciation for that being farmers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that has anybody ever been a farmer other than Jerry? 
uh, I've got a cousin that farms up in Ohio, and, and you know he has to he has to pray every day for rain or to keep for less snow or you know just to yeah. you know keep his equipment running. So I mean he he takes nothing like that for granted. Yeah. No, I love it. I think I've told you guys before, my dad would be out there. You'd get off the bus in April, and you would know that dad would be carrying his pliers with him, and using the wrong end of the pliers, he'd be digging up corn kernels. He'd be out there, and I could know every time when I would get off the bus in April sometime, you would see him seeing if that corn was coming up or not, if it had sprouted. And for however many years 30 years it always did and uh, and i was always amazed i'd be like dad does that corn like how come it never grows down it would always <laughs> and if the kernel was face down this i got a kick out of this if the kernel was face down it would do a little u-turn and it would come back up you know and i thought that is fascinating but dad would plant twenty-five thousand corn kernels for every acre and somehow, 24,000 of those little guys would come up and become, you know, stocks of corn that would produce an ear or two and would give Dad 180 bushels an acre, which would get us enough to, to eat some cornflakes. So, you know, it's <laughs> kind of an amazing deal uh, all the way around. But, Scott, I love your point there, and we need to be more appreciative of the way uh, the Lord provides for us, and certainly that's going to be a theme here, kind of throughout uh, the book of Ruth. Um, so she tries to tell them to go back. I wonder, and I didn't think about this until right now. I wonder if she really thought they were going to go back, or if she really wondered if one of them or two of them would stay with her. Got any thoughts on that, Jared? You know about stuff like that. <laughs> Do you think that she thought they were going to stay? Uh, Scott, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and wait, maybe we just don't have much insight on that, Papa. Well, she didn't. I, she didn't want to be selfish. I mean, these were two two daughters in law. Yeah, and so she probably had a maybe a. A better relationship with one than the other. I don't know that. Hard to know. Scripture, yeah. scripture doesn't say, but in the end, uh, Ruth goes with her, and and uh, Oprah goes back home. That's right. Yep. To yeah. her God, you know, and that and and this guy, the do good guy, um, he was amazing. He said, you know, she turned around and went back, and we never hear from her again. Orpa. Right. Yeah. Never, never, ever mentions her name again, except in this class. But and or whenever you read Ruth, and probably went back to her gods. That's right. Yeah, Chemosh. As sad as uh, as that is, you pick up there in verse ten, and they said to her. So they both at first um, said the same thing. They said to her, "No." We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I um, yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? So she's just saying the obvious. You know, let's say I even get another husband now. 
have sons. I mean, we're talking 17, what, 18, 20 years before those guys are, are grown men. Um, and so, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I have sons in the womb that you may, that may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear a son, you will therefore wait until they're grown. Would you therefore return from her and know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. So that's where we saw uh, the difference. You know this probably, but um, Ruth may be the, the um, least scandalous of all of the four women that we see in the line um, of Jesus before Jesus, because you've got Bathsheba, um, for sure scandalous. And um, who do we all have? Before that, we have Rahab. Yeah, Rahab, Rahab was Boaz's mother, remember? Ooh, yeah. How about that? That's interesting. And then Tamar, I think. And Tamar. And, 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 yeah. yeah, the famous Tamar. Mm-hmm. So, wow. So, there, there's those are the four that we have here. Um, anything before we move on there to 15? Because we get to a real key verse here soon. I'll just read one, one thing about Orpah. Again, Ferguson was so good. He said about Orpah, she considers her alternatives, God plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus God in Moab. Orpah makes her decision. She feels more secure with the latter equation and bases her decision on it. She chooses the familiar, the temporal, and the visible, but this is a something of eternal significance. I mean, you can read it quickly, but it really is a key key point. She she rejects the the true God. Uh, yeah. yeah. Could you say that again? That hit me, and I put that down. But the uh, the equation again. I love that. Yeah. She considers her alternatives: God plus nothing in Bethlehem, or everything minus God in Moab. Orpah makes her decision. She feels more secure with the latter equation and bases her decision on it. She chooses the familiar, the temporal, and the visible. Yeah. So. Um, you have to think, this is an amazing thing. Ruth picks um, Yahweh plus nothing in Bethlehem. That's what she's really doing. She is just saying, I'm going to come. And that's the, the, the saying that she's going to say here soon um, is just that. And she says, see... Uh, your sister-in-law, this is what Naomi tells Ruth, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return with your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. And uh, Ferguson uh, talked about that truly being conversion. And he said 11 times in, in this book. And that was interesting to me. There was that kind of language, conversion language, saying, no, I'm leaving, I'm repenting almost in a way. I'm leaving my people and my old gods, and I am going toward your people and your true God. I thought that was I was fascinating. That's all, one of the most famous verses, I guess, in Scripture. Yeah, and of yeah. course, just like in in Esther, if I perish, I perish. That's good. You know, 
And probably, wouldn't you say, the most uh, quoted scripture oh, out of the I would book think of so. Ruth. It's a little too long for a cup of coffee. Uh, coffee, coffee cup, cup. Or, yeah, maybe a, a shawl or something. There you go, a shawl. And uh, and in weddings, sometime you hear this. That's I think right. We might have had it in in maybe in, in our your wedding. in your vows, mm -hmm. even. Yeah, that's good, Jared. I don't want to um, understate the importance of Naomi as well in this section as Ruth makes her decision to follow Naomi. She said back in thirteen. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So it's bitter to Naomi for their sake. So we see that Naomi is actually thinking about Ruth and Orpah rather than herself. And we know that she's already stayed 10 years with them. So I think Naomi's works here had had an impression on Ruth, which actually was one of the big factors that had caused her to leave. And we talked this past week at work about uh, it's a little off track, but we talked about what makes a good leader. And the number one thing that we came up with was the character of that person. And you think about why you choose to follow Jesus. It namely comes down to his own character. And these are the things that are most stirring to me when I'm meditating on the person of Christ is thinking through his meekness and his kindness and um, his giving and all that was displayed in his works on the cross. So I think as we read this, we see in the same way, we have to let our light shine before others. And we have to have this impeccable character that's going to actually win people to Christ like Naomi wins Ruth um, back to Israel. Yeah, no, that's good. Scott? Yeah, I mean, again, to quote Ferguson about Ruth's conversion, he says, these words do reveal deep human affection, devotion, and determination, but they are much more than that. They constitute a confession of personal conversion. Your God will be my God is not so much a statement of undying love for a mother-in-law as a profession of faith. And I just think one guy just said the mysterious providence of God and the salvation of mm. sinners. Like Ruth, who would have thought that Ruth would come to faith? Like mm. they make a sinful choice. They turn away from God. They go there. These boys marry her. She's a pagan woman. They shouldn't have married her. But God uses all that to bring Ruth to saving faith. And I just think... I don't know, just thinking about your own conversion, like it's extraordinary that like you would be brought to saving faith and you can see it in Ruth, like how, and then she was going to be in the line of Jesus. It's just, that should stand out. God's amazing salvation of a sinner like Ruth, like who would have ever thought it? And I think another guy just said, the conversion of Ruth is a glorious event, but certainly one that is unexpected. She is a Moabite and one steeped in the paganism of her society, but God is not thwarted or blocked by such things. So it's just, yeah, beautiful conversion. Yeah, I love it. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman uh, and the women said, "Is this Naomi?" So it's guy. She's known a little bit. They're interesting. I don't know how big a would a Bethlehem been. Not very big guess? place. Not very big. No. Well, yeah. it's not a very big place now, but it was even that back then. Yeah, back then it's probably pretty small. How about that? That that reminded me of our small little Nebraska towns. Like if somebody leaves and somebody comes back, there's a big stir. Like, <laughs> ah, they're back. They're back. A corn husker so, yeah, came yeah, back yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so that you kind of get this idea that little hometown girl, she's she's come back. Now, That's right. And uh, and bringing Ruth with her. And so um, there's a little familiarity uh, there for sure, Papa. Um, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara. Naomi meant pleasant, and this is Mara, bitterness. 
For the Almighty, I love this. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mm -hmm. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Wow. But she's given, she's giving credit to God, providence. This is the bitter providences of God. Yes, that's right. And once again, doesn't the Lord always use every circumstance to uh, to work things together for good? Jared, you had, uh, God uses weak people for his purposes. The ordinary, don't we see this again, ordinary or through scripture? God uses ordinary um, people for extraordinary uh, circumstance or reasons. Tell us about that. I mean, we, we saw this back in Esther with Esther's basically an orphan girl and she gets brought all the way to the queenship. And in here we have a similar circumstance where you have Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah. All the men of the household die, which leaves you with three women alone in a famine in a foreign land in Moab. And God takes these three people and then he takes it down to two. So now we have two women alone. <laughs> he brings them back to Israel to Bethlehem, which um, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And then he says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So you have this hopeless situation, and God turns this into the messianic line from which Christ is to come from. So it's just fascinating in the story to see how God uses a very hopeless, a very weak circumstance and turns that into the sending of his son in the incarnation. Yeah. Good. Scott? Yeah, I mean, I may be a little bit harder on Naomi than everybody else up here yeah. on this. In terms of, I, she certainly believes that God is sovereign. There's no doubt about it. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with She's upfront. She's honest. She's not going to sugarcoat anything. I just wonder... How much is she thinking like the Romans 8, 28? Now she hasn't met no, Paul. I I think think so. No, 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 no. Like, I don't think so. Elizabeth Elliot. God does it anyway, but yes. she's no, he probably does it anyway, not but no, that I'm, way. But, but you gotta, you got to wonder, though, what, I, you know, Scripture is silent on things like this and always puzzles me. Like uh, the, the Jews, when they were in captivity in, in, uh, in Egypt for so many, 430 years or whatever it was, uh, what did they know? I mean, as far as Yahweh and 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 God and and what did what did what did Naomi take to Moab with her as far as her faith and and what did she teach her daughters in law or sons for that matter or her husband knew or, or whatever uh, but I mean she comes back to the city of bread and mm -hmm. and comes back at a time of barley harvest yeah isn't that great and uh, and and that's really good news so the the, the um, uh, how are we doing on time we're getting close um, there's a Jewish um, uh, ceremony uh, uh, called the Megala they read five scrolls at certain holidays five books and the song of Solomon at Passover Ruth is Feast of Weeks, and this would be the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And Lamentations, uh, and I, this is a new one for me, Tisha B'Av, and that's a celebration or a lament, a lamentation over the destruction of the temple um, and by the Romans. And then Ecclesiastes, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Esther, Pur Purim, as we, Purim, as we learned 
a few months ago. So yeah, Scott, help us, Elizabeth Elliot. Yeah, I mean, just one, well, one more thing about Naomi. She says she comes back empty, but one pastor just said if she would have lifted up her elbow and did this, she would have bumped into Ruth. Ruth had just been converted. And she doesn't. She doesn't seem to like rejoice about this because there is, I think, a seed of bitterness inside of her because the, the Lord has dealt this way, and I think she misses the big picture. Like God is always doing something, the very best thing, the thing we would most certainly choose if we knew the end from the beginning. Is that word to bring us to full glory? That idea. I think she's missing, and but for us, I think that the challenge is when we go through suffering, can there be bitterness that can rise up, like a seed of it? And there's different examples I could use, but one could be you're single and you want to get married, you long to get married, it's a good desire, you're praying for it, a friend of yours engaged, and the, the first response is not joy. There's some kind of bitterness, or you're infertile, or you're, you're struggling, there's pain in that. I, I know from experience, you're, you're struggling to have a child, and, you're, and then someone else announces the birth of a child, and you're not rejoicing. I mean, I think that's real sin in you because there's some there's bitterness that needs to be worked through. I, I just think all of us can go through different different scenarios where we have to th- know that God is always good. He, he's never going to do me wrong. He can't do me wrong. I think Mark, I remember something that Mark wrote years ago before the church started. He said, God has been nothing but good to me, both in life's joys and pains. And he added, and I have deserved none of it. I mean, I think that's wow. the attitude that we need yeah. when we face suffering. And But you can challenge yourself. Am I truly rejoicing at this other person who's getting something that I don't have? I think... And if not, then bitterness may be in us. Isn't that good? And Mark's also been helpful to say, really pour that out to the Lord. Confess that to the Lord. Jared, did you have something on that to acknowledge our bitterness? That was something that uh, I know Mark's helped me. Don't just stuff that bitterness. Don't just not. Confess that to the Lord, Jared. Yeah, I think just going off what you guys are saying, it can be very easy to slip into sin and to go wrong here. But I think Peter gives us a, a pretty good solution. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Mm-hmm. So our first response when we're going through difficult situations should be immediately to cast our anxieties on the Lord, not in a way where we're blaming him. And we also don't want to diminish his sovereignty over the events either. Because then you end up just detesting God for not intervening or um, being complacent. But we need to go to God and say, I know you're sovereign over this. And I know you have redemption and you have the answers for my problems. And you can give me peace in a way that I can't find right now. So, Well, that's really good. And you know, the promise is there, Jared, isn't it? To be anxious for nothing but everything. In everything. I heard a pastor that um, kind of really helped that this week to say, there's the contrast. Be anxious for nothing. Never, ever be anxious. But in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. I love that. Never be anxious, but in everything pray, and then he'll give you the peace that surpasses all understanding, according um, to, to Christ Jesus there. Papa, anything to close? I, I, may I read this, God moves in a mysterious way. Oh, yeah, I love it. Hey, before you do, though, Jared or Scott, anything? Good. This is really good. Since and we're talking about providence, this is, this is one of my most favorite hymns ever by William Cooper. As you know, he struggled massively with depression. and God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. 
You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by the feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Mm. That's really good. Scott, can you pray for us? Sure. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be able to study another book of the Bible in here, uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, I feel like no matter what book we're going to pick, we're all going to be very excited about it and just learning new things because your, your word is really is inexhaustible. And so what a privilege it is to, to open this up and to look at this first chapter. So much uh, to think on. Uh, we clearly see you are sovereign and uh, you are good. We see your providence at work for the good of your people in this. And uh, we see your sovereignty in the salvation of Ruth, and I pray we'd be encouraged as we, if we've studied that and think about our own uh, salvation, our own faith. It was a gift, and Father, but I pray that we wouldn't be like Naomi, and there wouldn't be bitterness in us when we are facing trials. Yes, we would grieve when we walk through deep suffering, uh, bitter providences, but Father, help us to remember behind the frowning providence, uh, there is a smiling face that you do intend good for us. No matter how deep the pain, you intend good for us, no matter what we're walking through. And the suffering that we go through may not really be about us. It may be about how you might use us in the lives of others. So help us to be good stewards of the suffering that we go through and help us to be quick to go to you first, as Jared said, to cast our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. I pray you'd be at work in the service to build up your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scott, can you give us Elizabeth Elliot quote one more time? This is just so good. God is always doing something. Uh, The very best thing, the thing we would most certainly choose if we knew the end from the beginning. He's at work to bring us to our full glory. Yeah, that's great. So good. Um, To read, if you would, chapter 2.